It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, like, because when I shot, I expected to make it. So, like, I don't shoot trying to miss. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to episode number 777 of Locked On Raptors for Friday, September the 4th. I'm your host, Sean Woodley of RaptorsHQ.com. Today's show is brought to you by RockAuto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the car parts you're ever going to need at RockAuto.com. More on them a little bit later. Usually I have a big preamble at the beginning of the show talking about where you can find the podcast and the other lockdown shows you should check out. I'm going to skip that for today because, man, do I ever want to get into the gristle of what took place in Game 3 between the Raptors and Celtics last night. You know what happened by now. Joining me to talk about OG Ananobi's game-winning three, Kyle Lowry maybe having his best-ever playoff game as a Raptor, and the Raptors pulling back to 2-1. In the second round against Boston is our friend from the Pound the Rock podcast and the score. It is Joey W. Joe Wolfond. What's going on, man? Uh, just recovering, I guess. <laughs> uh, my senses are still coming back to me. Uh, I'm still not entirely sure where I am. It's been a blur. I had to write the quick recap after the game last night. And for the first like 15 minutes, I was sitting at my laptop. My hands were still shaking and I couldn't put any words on the page. That was uh, the effect Last night's game had on me, and I'm sure a lot of other Raptors folks out there. Um, uh, let's start this off the way we typically do with one of these podcasts, Joe. What was your biggest takeaway from the Raptors' win? It probably has something to do with Kyle Lowry because he was everywhere for pretty much every minute of this game. But what are you still thinking about uh, a day later or 12 hours later, whatever the hell it is? Who knows what time is anymore after that win? I'm still thinking about that pass. I mean, the shot is obviously unbelievable. The, you know, the 0.5 seconds to get it off. It's a pretty good closeout, honestly, from Jalen Brown. I feel like he maybe took the brunt of the blame for just allowing OG to get open for that shot in the first place. But it was a pretty good contest. And to to catch it and put it up and put it in with 0.5 seconds is extremely impressive. But that pass was – it just didn't make any sense. Like, it still doesn't make any sense <laughs> that, that Kyle was able to thread that pass uh, across the width of the court over Taco Fall, who I like, I, I mean, Lowry backed up a bit too, which I think was smart. And Taco wasn't quite right up against the sideline. I don't think he made it quite as difficult as he could have, but to make that pass all the way across court and put it right in the shooting pocket to essentially beat the closeout, because if that, you know, if it's offline at all, if it hangs up in the air for like a split second longer, um, it's, it's possible that OG doesn't even have a chance to get that shot off. Or if he does, it's like, he essentially, like, OG was basically able to, like, he's going into his knee bend like he would if he had the ball in his hands and, like, coming up to shoot it. And it's like the ball wound up in his hands as he was coming up mm-hmm. out of his shooting motion. You know what I mean? Like, it couldn't have been a more perfect pass. And I just don't know how it happened. There were a lot of things that Lowry did in this game <laughs> that were incredible, but that's the one that I'm going to be thinking about, I think, for a really long time. 
Yeah, it's the best pass in Raptors history. I don't think there's any question about that. And, like, yeah, you know, it's one thing to get it over Taco Fall and get it inbounded somewhere. It's quite another thing to put it directly in the shooting pocket of your wide-open shooter 50 feet away on the other side of the court. It just, it was unbelievable. I still can't really fathom that it took place. I'm still kind of gathering my thoughts on how it all went down. I, I still, like, the whole... The, the Celtics taking the lead is still kind of a blur to me as well because that whole last minute was just like this feverish just blur of intensity and swapping back and forth possessions and you get that Fred Van Vliet huge clutch layup which we haven't even talked about at all um, and you know without that there, there, there's not we're not talking about this right now and it just the pass man <laughs> like and for Kyle like after the game too to defer and just like oh give OG his flowers give OG his flowers it's like the most Kyle shit ever he just is so happy when the other dudes when his beloveds do good things on the court and you know OG is rightfully getting a lot of praise today and his post game certainly is adding to the OG legend but none of that happens without Kyle Lowry and i'm pretty sure Thinking back to all of the playoff games he's played for the Raptors, and obviously, you know, Game 7 against the Heat is right up there. Game 6 against the Warriors is there, too. And you could argue sort of how necessary it was for Kyle to have those sort of -of out-of-body experiences in those respective games. I would argue Game 6, like, a lot of other guys played well in that game, and so they might have survived had Kyle not scored the first 11 points. But, you know, in terms of, like, necessity mixed with stakes... It's like that in Game 7 against Miami to me is the best Kyle games. And it just for him to play 46 minutes and to be completely gassed very clearly and like calling for timeouts late in the game just to get a breather, I'm just blown away by it, man. I don't think I've ever seen... uh, Let's put it this way. Maybe the Game 6 against the Heat was more important and more necessary because the entire team was pretty bad in that game as well, if I recall, except for maybe like Biombo or something like that. But... You know, for Kyle in this game, with the shine of being a champion now on him and this entire season kind of being built around Kyle just playing like a motherfucker the entire time and to have that playoff performance, like I'm at the point now, I don't even care if they win this series. I'm not expecting them to win this series and, you know, whatever, That that's a bummer, but also... The playoffs are not just about winning a championship. The playoffs are about building moments and having those individual games you're never going to forget. And the Raptors got theirs from these playoffs. And it'll certainly you know, hurt if they don't pull this back and don't make this a series and they lose in five or they lose in seven or whatever it is. But for Kyle to do that in that game and have that individual play, that pass, like that is to me a modicum of success for this playoff run. And I I don't know how you feel about that. I know you're not necessarily a rings or nothing guy either, but I just, I don't know how you can come away from that game and not feel satisfied about this entire season. If that's all we get in terms of big playoff moments against not the nets, I'm pretty okay with it. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And no, I'm not a rings or nothing guy at all, but also I remember very clearly feeling the exact same way after Kawhi hit that shot against the Sixers last year, being like, (laughs) it's all gravy from here on out. I don't even care what happens. And obviously like very quickly, I got super swept up in that buck series and it felt like life or death again. So as much as right now I'm feeling like we're playing with house money and whatever happens from here on out. Great. I'm sure come game four, I'm going to feel a whole lot differently. But Mm -hmm. 
agreed on this being like an absolute pantheon game for Lowry and his playoff resume. I think the one that I don't think gets mentioned enough in that group is that game four against the Cavs in 2016. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, when, when uh, they, they tied up that series and I think Lowry was 15 for 20 from the field in that game, 35 points, completely ridiculous. Um, so I put that one, the, the heat game seven game six against the Warriors. And this one's right up there in, uh, in like the best games of his playoff career. And I just, it really was like he he absolutely carried the team for most of the game. OG as well. Like I think you talk about this game and it's really those two guys. Yeah. Lowry plays 46 and a half minutes. OG was at 45. And would like to just say that it's very nice to have a coach that's willing to play his best players 45 <laughs> and 46 minutes in a must-win game. Just it's just nice. It's nice. Um and and they needed it. Like they needed him. I, I remember saying, like, I was watching with a friend and I was like, Lowry needs to play the entire second half. And I didn't think when I said that that he actually would, but he mm-hmm. did. And they needed him to. Like they they could not have survived with him spending any more than, you know, the 90 seconds that he spent on the bench in this game. Uh, because I, I think it was really important recognizing that their best means of creating efficient offense is to have Lowry be the primary initiator. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that continues to be the case moving forward because it just hasn't worked to nearly the same extent when they've had Fred or Pascal initiating. And it, like, obviously those guys are going to have to initiate at some point. It's not like Lowry can, you know, Lowry's not James Harden at the end of the day. Like he's not going to have the, the ball in his hands initiating every single possession, but that, that has been, uh, I think their best course of action offensively in this series and just his work in the pick and roll, like th- throughout the entire game was, pretty much perfect. Uh, and that is even with uh, Gasol and Ibaka flubbing like a few of his passes, which you don't mm-hmm. see happen very often, especially with Mark. Um, but he continued to trust them and uh, use them on the roll, which I thought was really important. And, and like that stretch when Cantor was in the game, which I really thought turned it. And like the Raptors don't win this game without that, you know, however many minutes Cantor was in the game, like that, Four allowed, minutes. that allowed the Raptors to win. And, they approached it perfectly. They attacked him in the pick and roll every single time. I'm pretty sure every possession that he was on the floor, they went at him mm-hmm. in pick and roll. Um, I think Fred got downhill and beat him for a layup. Lowry hit two pull-up mid-rangers on him. And then uh, I think the last one, like they, they finally brought Cantor up high because dropping him back wasn't working and put two on the ball. And it's like Lowry pocket pass to, uh, I, think it was, um, I think it was Ibaka on the short roll. And yeah. Serge made a great pass to Siakam cutting along the baseline. Um, and that was, I, I think they scored 14 points in, uh, in like the eight possessions that Cantor was in the game. So thank you, Brad Stevens. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what he was thinking there. I don't know why. I, I guess it was, you know, the Raptors were zoning up at that time and were kind of on a good run of getting stops. And maybe you figure you bring in Cantor, he can kind of go to work in the post a little bit. He can kind of break the zone maybe a little tiny bit. And then his rebounding against the zone, because he is such a good offensive rebounder, maybe you can take advantage of, you know, the Raptors have struggled at times, and most teams struggle at times when they're in a zone rebounding just because it's it's not as easy. You're not in the right spots a lot of the time. And maybe that was the thinking, but I, you just opened yourself up, not only to, like, Cantor getting bludgeoned, and, like, Cantor scored, like, four points or whatever, so he did what he was supposed to do on the offensive end, but you also opened up the Raptors to finding a rhythm that they have not had in this entire series, and that was through Kyle. Like, doing that and, and daring someone as smart and as aware as Kyle to 
carve up your worst defender in the pick and roll. I I mean, it, it's just it's baffling to me. I don't know why it is. I hope Brad Stevens does it again. That would be cool. Little heat check, but um, if not, that that's still I agree. That was. Oh, it was only a minus four for Cantor in those in those four minutes, but it really did sort of change the tenor of the game, and I think gave the Raptors some rhythm and hope and belief that they could actually do it. And you're totally right in that Kyle and his initiating is really the only reliable source of offense for the Raptors right now. Like, and poor Kemba Walker was just turned into food by Kyle time and time again last night, and I'm pretty sure Daniel Tice has a Kyle-shaped ass print bruise on his two front quads after that game as well, considering the number of times Kyle got in there, moved him out of the way with his ass, and scored. It's just, he was incredible, and he's, it, it continues the trend of me being perplexed that he's just figured out how to score at the rim again, which was not a thing for the last two years, and he's just decided, all right, I have to do it this year, I guess, and, and it's working well. Also, shouts to Kyle for uh, doing most of this while in foul trouble. He had two fouls pretty early on, and he played 46-plus minutes with that and played the last seven minutes on five fouls. Just remarkable stuff. Uh, we're going to continue talking about this game. We'll talk about uh, OG Ananobi. We'll talk about Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet, who had moments in this game as well. But first, I want to tell people about rockauto.com, which you know by now. I, I love rockauto.com. I'm a car idiot. I constantly get fleeced when I go to the mechanic because I don't know what things are supposed to cost. Rockauto.com tells you exactly what things are supposed to cost. And oftentimes, it's like 50% less than what a mechanic or dealership is going to try to sell you parts for. Rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers customers online for 20 years go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers they've got everything from engine control modules brake parts tail lamps motor oil new new carpet gas caps whatever it is they have it and it's for your classic or your daily driver as well you get everything you need and a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door the rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brand specifications and most importantly the prices that you prefer best of all prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the exact same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Let right locked on in there. How did you hear about us box? So they know that we sent you as well. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the car parts you're ever going to need at rockauto.com. The NBA playoffs are right around the corner and Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, Joe, let's uh, continue to dive into game three. Lots of interesting stuff in this one. Um, I want to talk about Pascal and Fred Van Vliet, who were by no means perfect in this game, were kind of no-shows in the first half. And Pascal, at one point in the middle of the third quarter, after hitting two shots, then missing like four in a row and continually trying to post up Jalen Brown to uh, very little success, uh, there were some calls for Pascal to be benched in this game, which I uh, just, I don't get it. I don't understand why that would be a thing that you resort to considering what's lingering on the bench to come in and replace Pascal if he were to be benched it's not a DeMar situation he does a lot on the defensive end as we saw in this game he was an absolute terror defensively 
I thought him and OG and just kind of the whole starting lineup really as they closed that game just swarmed the way we know the Raptors can swarm. He was, I think, the best option the Raptors had on Jason Tatum uh, in this game. He guarded him for just two minutes and 20 seconds per the NBA.com matchup stats. And, you know, again, all these matchup data are a little bit sort of grain of salty for, for, for a lot of these things. But uh, Siakam did hold Tatum to 0 of 3 from the field. He forced him into that shot clock violation late in the game as well. Just completely shutting him down like 30 feet away from the basket, getting no space against Pascal. And I thought his buckets, while they were sort of scattered about and not at all reliable, were timely. And I thought, you know, at the start of the third quarter, he puts in a couple. I think he hit a three and then uh, got that uh, back cut off of a Gasol pass, which was really nicely set up. And then he hit a couple in the fourth quarter as well, just kind of around the rim. I thought they were well-timed. I thought they were necessary, and they came when the Raptors needed them most. Shout out to Matt Devlin. They need it. Uh, <laughs> let's never hear that again. Um, but I don't know. What were your thoughts on Pascal in this game? Because I, I thought it was obviously an uneven performance, as we've seen throughout most of the bubble. But I, I thought he, especially on defense, kind of proved exactly why you can never even consider benching him because he is the vehicle for both your defense and offense to reach their peak. Yeah, I mean, who who are people suggesting should be in the game instead of him? Like, yeah. <laughs> have people watched Norm Powell play in this series? Like, what? I don't understand what people want to see. And um, look, I, I still think that he should be working more in pick and roll than he is out of the post. The post-ups just, like, haven't really worked in this mm-hmm. series. And unless he's posting up Kemba on a switch, it's just not something that I ever feel particularly comfortable with. And, like, he'll he'll get to that spin move, like, and beat, you know, even if it's Jalen Brown in the post every now and then. But, like, so many times, like, you know, we saw, like, he's gone at Semi Ojale. He's gone at Grant Williams. He's gone at Marcus Smart. And those guys are just, like, really difficult to move. And... Um, they're also kind of sitting on his right hand, right? Like they're not letting mm-hmm. him get over his left shoulder. They're sort of forcing him, um, you know, if he's on the right side, they're forcing him to go middle and they want to force him to use his left. And he just doesn't seem to have a whole lot of confidence in that hand right now. Even though I thought, you know, finishing down there, he's gotten a lot more ambidextrous over the years, but I think he still wants to get over that left shoulder and they're not really letting him do it. And he's really having to work hard for his looks down there. And I just think um, they've had a lot more success when he has, you know, run the the pick and roll with a small, like whether it's Fred or Kyle, they've run it, I think, with Fred probably more often in this series and mm-hmm. have gotten pretty good looks out of that. Um, they don't seem comfortable really using him as a screener in the pick and roll. And uh, I don't know, maybe that's just because of like the way the Celtics are going to swarm that and they're not respecting Mark's jump shot. And obviously they shouldn't with the way that Mark's shooting the ball right now. So hmm. if Mark is on the floor and you're putting, you know, Siakam in the pick and roll as a screener, it's certainly no guarantee that he's going to like find a clean lane to the basket on the roll or anything like that um, because they're going to send guys into the lane to help and uh, clutter things up. So I, I don't really know what the answer is because like the truth is I, I don't love seeing the post ups, but Pascal's face up game is just, not looking great right now either. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as getting him involved offensively, I, I think, I don't know. I, they just need to maybe find more stuff for him to do off of the ball. Like that's where he's been most effective to me. And I was really encouraged. Like that first play coming out, you mentioned it. Um, the first play coming out of the second half was like, you know, Gasol handling in the high post. And he does that head nod thing mm-hmm. where he's leading 
Pascal into, um, you know, it's like the post up that leads into like this sort of spin off cut to the basket mm-hmm. um, where he fakes coming up high to like get the handoff and Tatum tries to sort of jump it. And then Pascal slips back door. And that was just when I saw that, I was like, okay, the Raptors have a chance in this game. I don't know why, <laughs> but something about like, you know, the, the seeing that play where Mark is like just leading him with, with the head nod, it felt like so familiar. And it was like such a, it felt like a really confidence building play to me. Um, and so when they came out of the half and got that and, and executed it to perfection to get that basket, I felt like they were going to have a chance to come back. Um, but I agree that like, I thought defensively he was fantastic. I think all playoffs, honestly, he's been unbelievable defensively. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the great thing is like, as much as it sucks to see him struggling offensively as badly as he is right now. And as much as the Celtics seem pretty well designed to slow down, you know, at pretty much everything that he can do at the offensive end when he's not hitting his threes, uh, he's still providing a whole lot of value because of what he brings at the other end. So um, I just, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I think ultimately they're not going to win this series if he isn't better than he's been mm-hmm. offensively. And I, I just think that they need to find other ways of getting him involved and maybe not ditch the post-ups entirely. Like I said, like if he has Kemba on him, I'm more than happy for him to get down in the post. And even, you know, when it's Jalen Brown, there have been a couple times where he's managed to kind of like make plays out of that position. Um, even if the Celtics aren't hard doubling him, like they're sort of shading help his way and he's made passes that have led to buckets. So um, I, I don't think they need to completely ditch it, but like definitely I think they got to scale down his post touches. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a very clear delineation between when Siakam has success and doesn't when he gets into the post. And I find it's just like the speed with which he makes his decisions, right? I think we've seen, I think the start of game two was really encouraging because he was getting it and then quickly attacking, not letting the help to set up, not, uh, you know, worrying about who was shading over, just kind of, all right, I'm just going to split between the guy who's guarding me and whoever is going to come down from up top. And by the time I'm at the rim, it's going to be too late for them to send help, send help anyway. And, you know, he's, he made some nice passes out of that as well. He made some great passes yesterday too. I think he only had two assists in the game, but uh, there were a couple like beautiful passes that he threw in particular. I'm thinking of one right to the corner for Kyle, maybe in the right corner. Um, and so like, I don't know how you coach that up and say, all right, Pascal just work quicker. And it kind of just seems to be a rhythm thing with him. And it's a bit of a roll of the dice, but there's not, it's not all despair when he goes in there. It's largely despair, but there there are moments where it looks okay. And I'm with you. Like the pick and roll stuff, I think you just kind of have to try to work that in a little bit more. And it was what we talked about all season long with Pascal being just deadly in crunch time because that was just, they ran Kyle Pascal or Fred Pascal pick and roll every single time down the floor and scored every single time down the floor, it seemed. And that was wonderful. And they have not really gone to it all that much in this series. And credit to Boston. Like they can probably defend that better than a lot of teams can just because of how switchable they are. But I, um, yeah, you're not going to, like you said, they're, they're not winning this series unless Pascal plays well. And, and so you just kind of have to live and die with it. And if you die with it, then it's a learning experience and you go forward and hopefully he can kind of improve things and, you know, tighten up the handle or whatever it is this offseason because, you know, he'll, you know, do that and go to the workshop and, and work on things because that's what he's done for three years now. Um, one other thing, too, before we get to uh, sort of a look ahead to game three, Fred Van Vliet in this one. 
Uh, hit a couple timely threes, I believe, at the start of the fourth quarter, if I'm not mistaken, um, and looked better. Still not amazing. He was 9 to 22, but 5 of 13 from three. Him hitting his threes, uh, as it turns out, uh, makes a big difference <laughs> for the Raptors and how successful they can be. What were your impressions of Fred's game? Uh, I think clearly his best game so far in the series. And uh, I mean, if he does have that stroke back a little bit, that certainly changes things because the Raptors go from shooting 25% from three to something far more realistic and something that you can, you know, get you out of a series as opposed to that insanely bad outlier start they had from three in the first two games. Yeah, I mean, he, so five of 13 from three in this game, that was huge, especially he hit like two mammoth threes early in the fourth quarter when it seemed like, uh, I think the Celtics went into that quarter up by four Mm -hmm. and seemed like they might kind of have a chance to pull away a little bit. And, and Fred hit just two enormous threes to keep them in the game. Obviously that driving layup that you mentioned, um, I think it was Tice who was defending him and just like a really nice crafty finish from Fred to tie the game. Uh, before before Kemba made that play to put the Celtics up late, um, I just thought like he, he was he was better in almost every aspect offensively I think than he was in mm-hmm. the first couple of games and I think um, I'm, I'm still a lot more comfortable with him playing off of the ball. Yes, but um, because the thing is like if like if that pull up jumper isn't there for him, it's just like with him initiating, it's it's really tough. And there have been like a lot of aborted drives and resets and possessions where he's just chewing up a lot of clock over dribbling the ball. And I thought he was better about not doing that in this game. Like when he was initiating, he was a little bit more decisive. He wasn't dribbling the air out of it. Um, and seeing the jump shot come back was certainly really nice. So yeah, I mean, I, I just like, you just have to hope to see more of that. And I know like th- this was the best, three-point shooting game for the Raptors in the series and they still you know were only at 32 percent so I definitely think that that number can continue to come up and um I yeah like if if like Fred's I think Fred has to lead the way you know what I'm saying like he he shot 13 threes in this game and that was the most on the team obviously by far like he is without a doubt going to be their highest volume three-point shooter um so in a certain sense, it is as simple as that. Like if Fred is hitting their threes, then they're going to have a chance. And if he's not, then, you know, they might not. Um, but it was definitely nice to see uh, to see a few of them go down for him in this game after the tough start that he had. Absolutely. We are going to wrap up and take a look at game three and some things the Raptors can do to try to even this thing up on Saturday in just a second. But first, a reminder, make sure you're checking out Locked On Celtics. Our pal John Corrales, who was on Wednesday's show, is doing a great job over there. I'm sure there will be a lot of consternation over what happened at the end of the game for the Celtics. Uh, lots of talk of Jalen Brown, I'm sure, as the uh, Raptors picked them apart on the final play or Kyle Lowry more, more, more suitably pick them apart in that final play. So go listen to Locked on Celtics today with John Corrales. The NBA playoffs are right around the corner and Locked on NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked on NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked on NBA. Available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. All right, Joe. So game three, Saturday, 630. 
the the big thing that I kind of am looking for, and I'm curious if maybe something that took place in the fourth quarter of Game Three will open Nick Nurse's eyes to is still the small lineup. I've talked about the small lineup like five times on this podcast in the last four episodes. And so at the risk of beating a dead horse, I'm just, it still feels like something the Raptors should go to. It still feels like something that you can get more out of Siakam with as, as the center, as the screener, because the Celtics aren't a huge team, unless they're throwing out Cantor, which I think we're probably not going to see anymore. It just feels like something they can get away with and that might kind of open things up in the half court a little bit for them considering how little it seems like the Celtics care about Marcus Saul, who, as was quoted many times on the broadcast last night, has not yet hit a three against Boston at at all this season in seven games, which uh, is ridiculous. Anyway, um, I guess it hasn't been seven games. He missed a couple games, but either way, it doesn't matter. Uh, The... The small lineup, Joe. Norm Powell has kind of been the thing uh, I, I feel like has probably been the aversion to it, right? Because he's not been good. He was horrible in the first half of Game 3. Uh, like, the, the fouls he was picking up were just unconscionable. Like, what are you doing, man? And, and he just very much looked out of sorts. And as you mentioned, this is GoDaddy Norm. <laughs> it's, it's very much accurate. And then he looked better in the fourth quarter, hit a couple shots. He hit that huge three from like 30 feet out that um, kind of bailed the Raptors out late uh, in the middle of that quarter as well. I just, he has to be in that small lineup. And I, it's been a trade-off, right? It's, you know, Ibaka and Gasol have been, you know, Gasol hasn't been amazing, but he's been fine and his defense is excellent and the Raptors are still good when he's on the floor comparatively. And Ibaka has, until game three, been a, sh- a shot maker for them. And so it's, can you afford to not play one of your bigs and swap in Norm, who is not playing well at all? There was some talk last night, maybe you just try the small lineup with Matt Thomas at the three, which sounds terrifying to me. And as much as Thomas tries very hard on defense, and as much as he looked kind of sprightly out there in an 0-for-1 performance in six minutes, I'm not sure I'm willing to go that far because that cuts into the defensive versatility of of that small lineup. But with the way Norm played in the fourth quarter, are you at all a little more comfortable with the idea of the Raptors going small do you think Nick Nurse will be more comfortable with it or is it still a matter of you can't trust Norm compared to what you can trust to get out of Ibaka or Gasol on a given night I mean it's tough like I think it's worth trying uh but I mean my aversion to it is more just that I think the Raptors have actually been at their best in the series when Mark has been on the floor as frustrating as it's been and there was a play in that fourth quarter when you know, the ball got kicked out to him off of a drive and Tice was literally playing 20 feet off of him. Like he could not have been more wide open above the break. And there was not even a thought to look at the basket. Like he was already, as soon as he caught the ball, like he was already looking like for the next pass that he could make. And that's frustrating. And it's a little bit worrying. Like he, he just, even though he's struggling with his jumper, I just think he needs to be and then that possession wound up in a turnover as well. Like he just needs to be willing to let it fly. Um, and, and I don't think he can let the the Celtics get away with just completely ignoring him. So hopefully we won't see that again. Like I would like to see him at least like give a look at the basket, like put some thought in the Celtics mind that he might shoot the ball. Mm-hmm. But I think he's been so good defensively. And I, I think, you know, as much as we've talked about Lowry and, and like the OG shot and like, like Fred making those threes, like the way that they managed to pull this out down the stretch. I really think they won this game at the defensive end. Like their defense in the second half was fantastic. 
And I don't think that's possible without Mark there on the back line. Um, and also, like, you know, they were bringing, up, bringing him up uh, higher in the pick and roll in this game. Yes. And, and he really held his own. Uh, and I think uh, it seems like the Raptors have realized that dropping, you know, against whether it's Kemba or whether it's Tatum is not really a great option. And so they're trying to find other ways to play those pick and rolls. And I thought Mark acquitted himself really well uh, when he was coming up to the level of the ball. So that's like, I just like having him on the floor for defense. Um, and also, you know, as a, as a playmaking hub in this game, I thought he was quite good. So, uh, I, you know, my preferred look for them is still to have Mark out there. I think maybe the, the going small thing is a hedge against Surge looking the way that he looked last night. And mm. if he's not playable, then maybe you start thinking about potentially downsizing and, um, yeah, with Norm, I mean, it's just, he, he made some big plays in that fourth quarter, but obviously, you know, the defensive discipline wasn't there at all. And it just seems like it's a bit of a crapshoot what you're going to get from him from night to night. Uh, but, but if Ibaka's struggling, like I don't see any issue with at least giving that smaller lineup a look mm-hmm. and see if maybe, you know, somebody like Norm can't, get going a little bit if he's playing in more space. Um, and maybe they just like get the tempo up a little bit. Um, I, I just, I worry about how that might compromise their defense, I guess. But if they really need to goose their scoring, then I don't think it's the worst option in the world. And honestly, man, like I, I know they had to go zone to protect him, but I thought Matt Thomas looked pretty fine defensively in his mm-hmm. six minute stint last game. Like he, mm-hmm. he only attempted one three, he missed it. He didn't, shoot otherwise he didn't score but he was a plus two in those six minutes because the defense when he was in there was actually totally fine yeah he was like again you cannot uh discredit that dude's try hardiness because that that dude just runs around sometimes looking like a chicken with his head cut off but most of the time it's like a controlled chicken with head cut off run at least um and i I just my fear is that if you had him in there in a small lineup they would just hunt that switch all the time or they would just go at it. Like maybe they don't even try to switch. They just like, like whoever has the ball, they just take it to them because they have enough guys on the floor at a given time to potentially just sort of brutalize that one-on-one matchup. And, and, you know, if it's a zone, maybe you can kind of hide them a little bit better, as you mentioned, but I don't think you want to go with a zone when you're that small really either. That's not really the, the appeal of that. Right. Um, I think the point you made about Gasol coming up high and looking much better in his pick and roll coverage is also really important because that was, for me, the biggest impetus behind my pushing for the small lineup after game two is that Gasol looked like Jonas Valanciunas out there, just kind of getting stuck in no man's land as Kemba Walker, you know, he missed a bunch of threes. They could have won that game by a lot more in game two if Walker just has an average night because they, they like those were just like very easy rhythm pull-up threes he was stepping into with Gasol stuck, you know, five feet away from him, unsure of whether he was going high or dropping. And if Gasol's going to look like that, like he did last night in in the pick-and-roll coverage where there weren't those easy looks for Kemba, Kemba was amazing in this game, and he almost won it with a ridiculous pass to Tice. He was great, but I I think overall the way they defended Kemba, it's weird how he had his, like, biggest game in the game. I thought they defended him best (laughs) out of all three. Um, And that also applies against Tatum too, right? Like, the he's also a pull-up threat at the top of the pick-and-roll, and I thought they did a better job handling that as well. So it's less of a... 
pressing thing if Gasol is going to do what he did like in the finals last year against the Warriors, where he is this wonderful scrambler who can sort of cover all the space, even though he's so slow. Uh, it's it's a wonderful gift he has, but those long, gangly arms, I guess. Um, but yeah, and also you should, uh, like you said, you've enjoyed them best when Gasol's been on the floor. Over the last two games, the starting five and 38 minutes is a plus 18.9 net rating. And so there's not really any reason to go away from it at this point, as frustrating as Gasol can be. He was much better last night, as we talked about off the top in the pick and roll with Kyle and getting something out of him offensively that way, at least. If he can hit a three or two, that would be special. Just truly wonderful. I'll jump out of my seat, but um, they'd look totally fine when he's out there. I, I do agree, though, that if Ibaka comes in and is not sort of like the security blanket offensive player he has been at most of the time this season then yeah, I'd probably go small and just try it with Norm or even Terrence Davis, I guess, if you don't trust Norm, although Terrence Davis is not exactly engendering a lot of trust right now either. Um, Thomas in a last resort, I suppose, too. So um, interesting stuff, man. It's a weird series. It's a good series, and the Celtics are clearly a very difficult matchup, but they scraped out a win, and this is a team that's proven they can come back from down 0-2. Granted, they had Kawhi freaking Leonard last year, but um, they... Uh, they looked a lot better last night, and that is good. At least the defense wasn't good. like just that's the defense you need if you're the Raptors, right? Yeah. Where you know your offense is going to give something up, and you know you're not going to be this crisp, beautiful, pristine offense in the half court against the Celtics defense. But if the defense is playing at that level, you're never going to be out of a game. Um, any final thoughts here, Joe? Before we wrap this thing up, I mean, we haven't really talked that much about OG, but like I yeah. was fawning over the game that OG was playing well before he hit that shot yeah because he was so spectacular defensively like he like when he's on Tatum I just have such supreme confidence that he at the very least is going to make Tatum work for like a really difficult look Mm -hmm. and they're working really hard to try and screen OG off of Tatum and I think he's just done a great job getting around those screens and staying in the play um you know being able to catch up contest from behind and just recover and I, I don't think anything came easy for Tatum in last night's game. I mean, I know it was basically a team effort, um, both with, you know, Gasol coming and playing up high in the pick and roll against him. Uh, like you said, Siakam, you know, had some possessions playing against him in which I thought he acquitted himself really well. But Tatum goes 5 of 18 from the field. And that is the reason the Raptors were able to survive the Kemba Walker onslaught, you know, because Tatum wasn't there supporting him, essentially. Um, mm mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, like, that also speaks to what's so dangerous about the Celtics, right? Because Kemba had a terrible shooting night in game two, and the Celtics still managed to win that game because Tatum was unbelievable. And obviously Marcus Smart went off as well. But it's like having those three guys, it seems like every night one of those guys is going to pop off, and it's just really difficult to hold all of them down. Uh, mm-hmm. So Kemba was that guy last night, but I just thought um, – the, the team defense and especially OG's defense on, on Tatum was unbelievable. And then, um, like, he was all over the glass, too, which is not something you usually see from OG, even given his physical tools. Like, he's not really uh, a huge rebounder, but he pulled in 10 boards. And forgotten in all this is that offensive rebound that he grabbed to set up the Fred driving layup to tie the game. Yes, yes. Which was absolutely huge. Um, so I thought... I, I mean, that's one of the best all-around games that I've seen him play. Even like, even if he hadn't made that shot to win the game with 0.5 seconds left, that was one of the best games that I've seen him play. So uh, for him to ice it in the way that he did 
And obviously just like the reaction, which is like, even knowing, you know, OG and like, like his persona, his temperament, like I was still kind of surprised to see how unaffected he was by <laughs> what was, you know, undeniably the biggest moment of his career, right? Like, mm-hmm. and to just strut away like nothing had happened was, I don't know. I mean, that that just sort of gives me a sense of of confidence in him. Not that I wasn't already confident in OG, but it's very clear that the moment doesn't really affect him in the way that it affects normal humans. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, man, that uh, reminds me of somebody. A little bit, a little bit. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, I mean, he's always been good in the playoffs. I, I, he was excellent in his rookie season against the Wizards and the Cavs. I mean, who can forget that fourth quarter he had against the Cavs in, in game three, uh, which, boy, did I have a lot of visions of game three as the uh, <laughs> as the Celtics were coming down on that final possession to try to take the lead 103-101, which they did in less dramatic fashion and just slightly less buzzer beater fashion, obviously, than LeBron did. Um, but yeah, OG's awesome, man. He's just, and it, it's kind of, it almost speaks to his style of play that we kind of forgot to talk about him until the end of the podcast. And that's probably on me as a bad podcast host, but he, it's just kind of the, the, the underneath stuff, right? The offensive rebounding, the defense that is always less sexy than big offensive numbers. And this wasn't his best offensive game, although he was damn effective when he got the ball. Um, I just, I'm blown away by him. He's so calm and cool, which in the playoffs, it's hard to find guys like that. You know, the Raptors, how long have we talked about the Raptors just constantly coming up against the moment? And obviously it wasn't the same last year with Kawhi and sort of the, the ethos that that team had. And I don't, but I think you could even argue this year, there's been like a bit of a differentiation in how the team has played because of the playoffs and the sort of circumstances they present. But OG just continues to hum along doing OG shit. And I mean, when you consider that this is really his second year of full-time play and development, and you know, last year was such a lost season for him, he's still so young. It's Giannis has a really good uh, wing partner <laughs> coming up in 2021. Um, if uh, Vincent Goodwill is to be believed, it, it, it's it gives a lot of hope for what this team is going to look like. Giannis or not down the line. I, I, I mean, you know, obviously you don't want to over project and get too hyped up over one game or a few games, but the, the future of OG looks incredibly bright. And I don't know, has your sort of outlook on him changed at all over the course of the bubble here as he's clearly taken a step and, you know, are you kind of reevaluating how he fits into the future of the team? I mean, he's always going to be part of the team going forward, but maybe he's a bigger part of it than we thought. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's changed too much because I've been really high on him pretty much all year. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's taken it up a notch in the bubble for sure. But I, I all year have felt like he has shown that he can be more than just a 3 and D guy. And, and the 3 and the D are both very clearly there, and that's fantastic. But it's, it's the stuff in between that that he's done that has given me a lot of hope that he can be you know, like a foundational piece rather than just an elite role player. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if that means he's going to be like a multi-time all-star, but I think, you know, my projection for him coming into this season would have been like, okay, like this is, this is a guy who projects to be sort of the platonic ideal of a three and D 
but you're never going to be in a situation where you want him handling the ball. And that may still be true, but as a guy who can be kind of like a second side attacker um, and, you know, attack off of the catch and bust a scrambled defense and do more really than just attack in a straight line too. Right. Because he's shown, I think with the spin move and like a couple of crossovers um, and his ability to kind of move side to side with the ball in his hands, rather than, you know, what he's been doing the couple of years before this, which is just, if he's driving, it's a straight line drive. Um, I think he's shown that he has a lot more ability and he's still, what is he? 22 is 23. Like he's, yeah. he's obviously still super young and has a lot of room to grow. And, and, Similar to, you know, what my feelings have been with Siakam, even without consideration of, of where those two guys are, are on the aging curve, I, I, I think what I tend to look at is like, okay, like what kind of strides have, has this player made in like a short amount of time? Mm-hmm. And I think that's more indicative to me of like how old a guy is uh, or like where his game is at right now. It's like you look at... Um, you look at like what a guy has managed to change and like how he's managed to grow. And and the fact that uh, I've seen so much growth from OG this year um, gives me a lot of hope that like, you know, if you project that forward uh, I really do think that he is going to be an important player for this team for a really long time. And just an impossibly cool one as well. Uh, (laughs) That's also an important part of it all. He's a really easy dude to root for because he's cool as hell. And I'm, I mean, it's just, I'm still thinking about the, the spin and lefty finish he had in game two also. It's all very, very promising with him, man. It's, it's nice to have another dude that the Raptors have developed to the point where you can get really, really excited and potentially a little bit hyperbolic with your expectations and your hopes and dreams. It's always a good thing. Um, Joe, this was wonderful. You did not shoot trying to miss on this podcast, and we appreciate that always. Uh, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Just the usual stuff. Uh, my features over at The Score, uh, Pound the Rock, the podcast I do with Joe Cash over there. Um, and uh, if you're inclined, uh, my Twitter feed, Joey underscore W, where I tweet a lot about the Raptors and other basketball things and tweet out uh, the features that I write. So, uh, yeah, you feel free to check me out, I guess, if you want. Absolutely do it. I mean, I, there's probably very few people listening to this podcast who don't already follow Joel Wolfon, the legend that is Joel Wolfon. But if you aren't, go do it because he's great. Uh, that is going to do it for today's show. Sorry we ran a little bit long, but it felt like it was... Uh, needed today considering the events of last night i'll be back again on saturday night after game four hopefully we're talking about a 2-2 series if not we will uh, wallow in despair on a saturday night and talk about a 3-1 boston lead either way uh you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts please make sure you're subscribing rating and reviewing all of that stuff tell a friend if you have a raptors fan friend who's looking for some content uh direct them this way that would be lovely and we'd very much appreciate it uh any new patronage is always nice the playoffs are always good for new listeners so if you are a new listener thank you for joining and being here and all that good stuff uh also make sure you're checking out the entirety of the lockdown podcast network lots of great stuff covering the nhl mlb nfl season's about to start obviously all the nba shows going strong too it's uh it's an exciting time in sports as weird and dystopian as it is there's a lot of sports to cover and we have you covered here on the lockdown podcast network and that is all for today we'll talk to you again on saturday night with another episode of lockdown raptors
Prime members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.